We are in the midst of a study called New Testament Postcards. What in the world could that be about, right? What we've been doing is taking New Testament books that happen to be brief. They're not a long epistle, but they are a postcard, in essence, in their length. Everywhere from 11 verses up to 25 verses. And we've been studying each of these and learning important truths. How many of you know that sometimes if you will study the Word of God systematically rather than just picking out a topic here, picking out a little subject here, grabbing this one because it made you feel extra special. We all do that, right? Or the worst of all is this method. You know, this kind of a method. It helps us to study God's Word systematically. Do you know what happens, though, when you study systematically? Certain things you can't skip. And there are certain times, frankly, that you feel you're tempted <laughs> to just skip right over this. Mm, I think I'm just going to skip right over that a few chapters and go over here because it either becomes a little bit too hot for us or it's a little bit too personal or it's a little bit too theologically challenging or it messes up our thinking or whatever, and we do that. When you do a study like we're doing through these postcards, even though there's only a few of them, we're about ready to wrap up the series next week, you can't skip anything. That's the case today, because we have already studied Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and today we find ourselves where? At the book of Jude. Now, let me just say this to you. The book of Jude is one you might be tempted to skip over, all right? Not every verse, but as a whole, it might be something you might be tempted to skip over. Today, the subtitle kind of for this message today is Contending for the faith. And we will look and explore the book of Jude not only today, but also next Sunday as well. Did you know that it has been said that Jude is the most neglected book in the New Testament? The most neglected book in the New Testament. It is not the shortest book in the New Testament, but it is frequently the most neglected. And I think there's some reasons why. It is not the easiest to read. Those who attempt to read it and understand it often feel like it's actually bewildering, even mysterious. And admittedly, its language is strange sometimes, and its word pictures seem curiously foreign to us. But it is truth. And if the truth be known, originally when this letter was written and sent and distributed and circulated among the churches of that day, I'm sure that the first time it was read, it probably struck the hearts of the readers relevantly, remarkably relevant to them, and it felt like a hammer to the heart because of the way Jude writes. For some people, Jude may feel too scalding. But I like what J. Sidlow Baxter said. He said, no, no, no. He said, it's not Jude that is too severe. It's our own perception, which is so blurred. Oh, wow. I think Baxter had it right. We need a little bit of Jude in the day and the culture that we live in. It is hands down, by the way, hands down in my view, the single most dogmatic expose and denunciation of error and false ministers, and apostasy 
in all of the Bible. You will notice that it is dogmatically written, and it is a little hot at times. So, unfortunately, today and next week, we'll not have time to just dive into every single verse, and so I've had to kind of decide how to approach this book. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover today kind of more broad strokes. I'm going to give you kind of the meat of what the purpose of the book was all about, get into some of the first few verses that are so important, and then we're going to jump over uh, next week to some of his practical exhortations. All right? So what I want us to start doing is about simply reading a few of the verses. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of it today, but I'm going to walk you through a few. So uh, I've chosen to read uh, up through verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. And then I'm going to skip down and read to you uh, the last two verses because I won't have a chance for that next week and I want to make sure you hear it. All right? So if you have your devices or you have your Bibles with you or you would like to look at the screen, you can see the verses that we'll read. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love. Be yours in abundance. One scripture, one translation says, be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, one translation calls it our common salvation, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Now, I'm going to skip down to verse 24 and verse 25. And by the way, this is commonly referred to as a doxology. Does anybody know what the word, what a doxology means? What it, what it would mean? Hmm? Okay. Many people think it's always closed. It's not always in closing, although it does, sometimes you'll find it there. By the way, welcome back from the prison ministry, Jezreel. Jezreel always pops in in the middle of the services. It's not because he's always late. He's ministering in the prison. All right, just had to include that, brother. God bless you. Um, it, is a, it is the ascribing of glory and majesty to God. It is a statement, and it is always usually crafted kind of linguistically and in language in a certain way. And it has this resounding uh, sound of almost an anthem-like declaration. And there are numerous doxologies in the Scripture. You find them in, in the Old Testament. You find some a little bit more prevalent or more well-known in the New Testament. This is one of my favorites, just happens to be. Here found the end of the book of Jude, so I, I have to read it to you, in verse 24 and 25. So let me just read it. So this is the doxology at the very end of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Wow. Isn't that powerful? Can I just point out one thing very quickly, and, and we'll start digging through this little bit by little bit. I want you to notice that the way he starts, there's something about the way he starts off this little letter, this postcard, and the way he ends it. He knows he starts by saying, to those who have been called and loved and the God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then he picks up the same theme, interestingly enough, there in the closing doxology, to him who is able to what? To keep you. Isn't that neat? Yeah, that's no mistake. He is able to keep us. And I think the reason maybe by the emphasis on his keeping, preserving power is because in between verse 2 and verse 24 and 25, things get really tough in Jude. All right? So I think he's just trying to build us up, make sure we all know that Jesus is the one that keeps us. Amen? All right, so here we go. So let's do a little bit of background work. Uh, Let's get acquainted. The writer is, as you know, and is very apparent, the author is Jude. Very little argument about that. By the way, sometimes he is referred to as Judas. Jude, Judas is the same, has nothing to do with Judas Iscariot. It was simply a common name in those days. So it's written by Jude, and we know that because the very first verse says what? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. We're told three things. His name, we're told what he thinks is the most important thing for you to know at all, and that is what? I'm a servant, a doulos, a bondservant. I'm like a slave and a servant of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him, that was far more important than any uh, title. It's far more important than anything else he could write about himself. He simply identified himself, as we know that Paul did frequently, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this part. Then he throws in this reference, a family reference. And he says, and the brother of James, period. Now, remember who James is? James is the brother or half-brother of Jesus. He's Joseph and Mary's boy. Y'all with me? Okay. So he's Jesus' half-brother. If anybody knew Jesus, it was Jude and James. And yet, wouldn't you think, like if this were written today, in the day of marketing and branding and wanting to make sure that we get the biggest bang out of anything that we open a letter up with, what do you think Jude would have said? Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm here to talk to you, right? Don't you think he would have bragged about it? I think I would have been tempted to brag about it, but no, not Jude. He simply says what? The brother of James. He could just as easily add a Jesus on there. Sure, but he didn't. Why did he leave it off? I think it speaks to the humility that Jude carries. And his humility is getting ready to turn into fire here in a second, but he's coming to them with that humble spirit, and he clearly identifies himself in these ways. All right, who is this written to? He tells us once again in verse 1, he tells us who's writing it. Number, in verse number 2, he tells us who it's to. It is to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, this letter, this postcard is not written to a person. This postcard is unlike some of the others. This postcard is not written to a group of churches. It's not written to one church. 
It is written to the capital C church, the body of Christ at large, to the universal body of Christ. This is a letter he deemed important for everybody to read and know it's applicable to you. He describes his recipients as three different ways. He says, I'm writing this to those that are called, to those that are loved, and to those who are kept. Aren't you glad you're called today? Amen? This has nothing to do with being called to some project or called to some ministry gift. This is a general calling. All of us in this room who love Jesus and are part of the body of Christ, you could consider yourself called. You are the called of God. In fact, the word for church is the, is the Greek word what? Ekklesia, which means what? The called out ones. You are called. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're called. Turn around and say, you're called. But not only are you among the called, he says you're also what? Loved. Isn't that good? It's one thing to be called. It's another thing to know we're loved. And we're loved unconditionally. Hallelujah. I'm the loved. I'm the beloved of Jesus. Turn to your other neighbor and say you're loved. All right, so we're called. We're loved. He throws in one more description. We're also what? Kept. One version actually uses the term preserved. You're preserved. You're kept. You know, I just... When I was studying this recently, I thought, you know, we don't talk about being kept too much. It's a good thing to know that I'm kept. That, that gives me a sense of what? Security. Safety in Jesus. Gives me peace. I'm kept of the Lord. So in his description of his audience, he tells us these three important things. Called, loved, and kept. And then... I, wanted, I thought it might be helpful as we start that I might just give you an overview summary of the purposes and the reasons. It's an important picture. Take note of it. Of the important reasons and cause for him writing this postcard. Do you notice that he starts off by saying this? Let me paraphrase it. I started, when I started writing, I started with the intent of writing something different. I was going to write you this long, lengthy, wordy treatise about the salvation that we share, this big picture salvation of God's glory. You know, he was going to write a treatise. It was probably going to be theologically profound. And he said, but something stopped me. I felt this urgency, this compelling to, do, to write something different. So he puts away all the papyrus, the thick, long papyrus sheets, and he takes out a small one, and he writes a brief postcard with the most urgent thing he could think that God wanted to say. Interesting, isn't it? He writes to them something that he felt really super motivated. This is his language. I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, but I felt what? compelled. I felt compelled. How many of you ever woke up one day and felt compelled to do something? Not, not a fleshly compulsion, but the Holy Spirit compelling, stirring you up to go certain things, talk to someone. There are times sometimes during any course of most weeks that I feel some compelling of the Spirit to do something. It might be to send someone a text, and I don't know what their need is, but I'll just act on it, send them a text of encouragement. You know what I find out later? They say, you just don't know, Pastor. Boy, I really, that day I needed that today. You see, listening to the Holy Spirit works. Listen to those compelling nudges 
and prompts that God gives to you, they'll work out for the good. He said, I felt compelled. I'm putting away that long treatise. I'm just going to write you this little note, this little postcard. But he also says what? I'm feeling compelled to write and to urge. Do you hear that language? Urge you. I'm not just informing you. This isn't lightweight. I'm urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There's three purposes for this postcard. Number one, he wanted to confront and denounce false teachers. He does it unequivocally. He does it without any embarrassment. He does it without mincing any words. He's clear and he's confrontive. He's going to confront and denounce the false teachers. We'll talk more about them in a moment. Number two, he wants to guard and protect the church and general, not one little church. The church, he wanted to guard and protect the church from danger. He perceived the church was in danger. Folks, how many of you think maybe, maybe, maybe today this letter might have some relevancy and that some of the church today around the world might also be in danger? I agree. Number three, he wrote to encourage believers to maintain their faith. He wanted them to, to get with it. He wanted them to press in. He wanted them to be sustainable, to press in and maintain their walk. And next week, we'll get into the encouraging exhortation. Nothing today about that, but next Sunday, we'll do that. We're going to give you the hardcore stuff today, all right? So next week, we'll get into that. So those are his three big purposes. All right, what was the problem? What got Jude stirred up? What was it other than God? What was compelling? What was he aware of that made him feel this urgent, compelling to write this direct note? And I think that there are a couple things that are very apparent from uh, from reading his notes. And what I've chosen to do is to offer a little background that will hopefully build some momentum and crescendo for Jude's warning. So the way I'm going to do that is we're going to put it in reverse and we're going to look at some warnings similar that Jesus Christ gave. Then secondly, we're going to pass it off, pass the baton to the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see the words of Paul, what he said. He's also going to give some similar warnings, and then they'll be complimented here, and it won't seem so strange when Jude gives his warning and his challenge to us and to those he's writing to. You ready for this? All right, so first of all, Christ's warnings. All right? Uh, I could give many scriptures, but I just chose two. First of all, from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Get my scripture back up here. Well, I had it up here. Give me just a moment. Uh, the first one is Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus says this, Watch out for false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In what? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ferocious, what? Wolves. Verse 16, By their fruit, you will recognize them, right? All right, give me just a moment. I thought I could hold my place here. My phone's not cooperating. All right, I'm with you now. Hold on one sec. I added this, as you can tell, at the last moment. All right, here we go. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11 and 12, he's speaking more of things to expect in the last days. And what does he say? He says, and many 
false prophets are going to appear and they're going to deceive many, not a few, many. Think of the gravity of that. They're going to be deceiving many. And then he adds, and he said, and because of their teaching, he said, people, Christians, are going to wax cold in their devotion. In other words, they're going to actually, people are going to, their faith is going to be affected. They're going to fall away. They're going to, they're going to no longer be hot. They're going to start to weaken in their faith. This is a pretty strong warning. By the way, I've seen it happen over and over and over again. This is relevant stuff for today. So those are two warnings from Christ when he was basically warning us what? Hey, look out. False ministry's coming. Be watching for it. And then we notice that Paul adds to it some of his own, and I've just picked three out from Paul. There are many, but we'll start from Acts chapter, uh, uh, Acts chapter 28. And I'll pick it up here in verse uh, 28. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's Acts chapter, it's Acts 20. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong one. Acts 20, verse 28 through 30. Now, setting, he is speaking to the elders and the pastors from the church at Ephesus. He is at Miletus. They're holding a pastor's and elders retreat. All right? He's there. This is his last words to them. He's going to give them a you know, boost, a word of encouragement, exhortation. Then Paul's taken off. All right? So listen, to me, that means what he's getting ready to say is pretty important. So this is instructions to the overseers here at the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says. Keep watch out for yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made your overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know, watch this, I know that after I leave, this is fascinating to me, not now, but after I leave you, Savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Notice a couple of observations. First of all, I think it's important. Paul's been there ministering with them for a good while in the past, and he's simply saying, listen, I'm getting ready to go. I'm not going to be around anymore. And he said, I know how the enemy works. He said, the moment I leave, the devil's going to try to stir up trouble. Because Paul had more discernment. Obviously, he was more mature in the faith. He had, he had eyes to see, and he's trying to train these new elders and pastors. He said, listen, watch out, because the moment I get out of here, they're going to start propping up. And notice he didn't say they're going to come in from the outside. What did he say? They're going to be where? The attack's going to come from where? From within. I think for the most part today, we, as the body of Christ, a part of the body of Christ, uh, is increasingly... I would speak, if I'm speaking more broadly, I would think the church and the body of Christ has become increasingly aware of spiritual attack from the outside. I think that is true. Uh, we are keenly aware uh, in our particular flow and genre here, we're very keenly aware of the reality of spiritual warfare. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, we're aware of it. We understand what spiritual warfare is. We deal with demons straight on. We don't hesitate to talk about it. It's a reality. We know how to deal with it. Spiritual warfare is real. But what I'm concerned about is that we may not be as attentive and as trained to deal not with a, when the devil attacks from the outside, but what about if he does something from the inside with someone who is an imposter, someone who looks like you, 
who looks like me, who goes and acts like we do. They go to the same service that you do. They go to the same small group that you attend. But yet, they're a wolf. The deception is how they come across. Notice that he said, and they're going to what? They're going to draw people to themselves. Listen, you're going to just know that at the root, usually a false ministry is not theology. Theology's involved. Bad teachings involved. Winds of doctrine. But you know what's at the heart of it? Self. Someone's trying to gain something out of it. And usually you can find personal profit, financial, or power. People who are usually not trustworthy, who, who take the church down the wrong road, who lead a group of people off into error, who take people here, do all these things, are usually people who are not just so deceived that they really think that they are. They have motives. They're human, carnal-based motives. They want money or they want power. Almost all the time. Rarely do you see someone who is just totally believes that they're Jesus in the flesh. I mean, you just don't see that too Are y'all following me? So Paul's warning these shepherds. He said, listen, you better watch out because it's going to happen. They'll come in among you and they will not spare the flock. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's speaking about the end times. Listen to what he said. The time is going to come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Now, don't let the word doctrine scare you. The moment someone reads the word doctrine, they go, oh. The word doctrine here just means teaching. Just teaching. All right? I, I've, this is, uh, I have to just share this kind of a word study thing. I always love this because in, in 2 Timothy 4, when it says the time's going to come, people are not going to be able to endure, Christians are not going to be able to endure or put up with sound teaching. The word sound there in the original language suggests is similar uh, from an etymological standpoint to our word, our English word, hygiene. Good hygiene. We all know that good hygiene is important. How many of you want to make sure when the surgeon gets ready to cut on you that they practice good hygiene? That, 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 that that room is, is surgically ready. It's prepared. There's, there's not going to be bacteria running around. You're not going to die because they cut on you, right? They're practicing sound hygiene. Here it's talking about hygiene, a hygienically clean teaching. Wow. And yet Paul says, listen, instead to suit their own desires. Do you see self again here? Instead, to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they're going to turn their ears away from what? The truth. And they're going to turn aside to myths. This is an accurate description, friends. I hate to tell you, it's been going on for the last couple of decades. It's still going on today. Christians, for the most part, have a problem because it's all about them. And they want to make sure that their ears are itched, that, they're, that, they, that whatever their pet message is, is what they're hearing. Yes, sir. 
And they're, they're always swinging to extremes. And, they, and sometimes it's not even extreme. It's simply not balanced. Everything's just not balanced. But, but they don't want to hear a, a message on that sound, solid Bible teaching. Instead, you hold a seminar on uh, some hyper form of this or that that appeals to people's flesh and, and what they can get out of it. Because let's face it, we live in a self me generation. Amen. So if it's about me and it's all about what I can get out of this and you'll pack the room, you hold, you hold a Bible conference, two people show up. I only li- I've heard people say, Oh, I only listen to so-and-so. I only watch so-and-so. They may be the best people in the world. I get really nervous when people tell me that. I never, ever want you to only be listening to me. You'll notice that I make sure that we have a variety of gift ministries. You you need to hear other people's voices. And anybody, listen, the last thing I want is people to say, like like Paul said, you know, I'm of Apollos, I'm a Paul, I'm a Bobby. You know, we can't handle that stuff. We just want to all belong to Jesus, amen? That's where our devotion lies. But when you start following this thing of saying, "I, I like this kind of teaching, or I only like it this way, you're, that's dangerous. And you will be led away. And I'm not going to name names. I could. But I'm not going to name names. But there are a lot of broadcast ministries today. There are a lot of things that are, we have so we're overwhelmed with stuff on the Internet and, and, and broadcast and radio and TV. And, my gosh, there's so much out there. Friend, you have to be more careful. You think they had to be careful? You think the New Testament church had a problem? We've got a problem. Our exposure is, is a million times what their exposure was. And we can be led astray. We can't just say, I just want this teacher or just this teaching because it makes me feel good. I, I don't want to go off the rails like I did last week, but I just want to say this to you. I do want, I'm tempted to say this. Now, I have a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of churches, a lot of different kinds of churches, have a lot of friends. But I just got to tell you, I know a lot of people today, pastors of churches and church leaderships, that make decisions on the content of their service, the content of their messages, not based on truth, but based on how can I get the biggest listenership. If I pick this topic and I teach on that, I think I'll get these people to come. And if I teach on this over here, people may leave. And particularly, I don't want people to leave who are giving a lot of money. Why would I want? Are y'all, talk, are y'all with me? I know y'all look at me like, oh, this stuff doesn't happen today. Would you wake up and smell the coffee? It happens all the time. Decisions are made about what to teach, what to preach too many times based upon what's popularism. Are we going to bow at popularism? Are we going to serve the truth, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God? Even sometimes when it makes you uncomfortable. Listen, sometimes sometimes just eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches isn't the best thing for you and your kids. Sometimes we need a good dose of broccoli. There's plenty of broccoli in this book. We need to read it and study it a little bit. Not just, oh, I just like to hear this. And some pastors, honest, they tell me this. People tell me these things. Can you believe that? They say, well, I don't want to teach on that because I might stir up some 
you know, people might get a little upset in the church and might say that. And so people will tend, look, if we're not careful, what will happen is the spirit of our day creeps in and we do what is culturally acceptable rather than what is biblically and spiritually acceptable. And we compromise truth. Are you here? So if you want just flattery, I could give you some other names of churches. Because right? I'm not going to do that. What we are going to do is people of the truth. And we're going to and, and when we're wrong, we're going to get into the world. We're going to find out where we're wrong. But I'm not afraid to lose people Amen. over the truth. Because then, as long as God's smiling, if, if he's smiling, I'm good. How about y'all? Amen? I thought, I don't know, somewhere in my background, I remember being taught where to be God pleasers. Somewhere I remember something about that. Here, we got a problem. Paul's predicting it, and he once more in 2 Corinthians 11, he warns him, he said, listen, I'm concerned about you, church. I'm concerned that y'all are going to listen to stuff, and you're going to buy into another Jesus. You're going to actually receive another spirit. By the way, that's a great text to demonstrate that Christians can be influenced by demons. You'll receive another spirit. And then he said, and you might even buy into another gospel. Do you think that's happening today? All over. I won't belabor and get into the weeds, but I'll just give you one. I'll give you an obvious cult example, all right? Mormonism. They preach and teach another Jesus. You say, but they teach about Jesus. It's another Jesus. And he said, I'm worried about y'all. You're going to be sucked into that. All right, let's get to Jude. Jude's warnings fall in line with exactly what Jesus prophesied, exactly what Paul was concerned about, and he begins to lay it out. And here was his warning, two-fold warning. One, in verse 3, he says, contend for the faith. The word contend, when he, by the way, the faith, when he said contend for the faith, he's not talking about saving faith. He's not talking about miracle working faith. He's talking about the, with the article, the faith. In other words, our faith. It is the faith of, of, uh, of our Christian belief, our faith, the doctrine, the practice, the teaching of Christianity. That's what he's talking about. He's saying you and I have to contend for the faith. The word contend means fight. Struggle, fight to protect militantly. I I don't know. Other than some extreme groups that are messed up in other ways, there's not a lot of fighting for truth that goes on. I'm not saying go fight people physically, but we need to have this, we need to earnestly contend. We need to fight with everything in us to defend and engage over what has been handed to us. You and I have inherited the heritage of our faith and the word of God and the Holy Spirit's activity. Folks, I will fight for that. I'm not going to let someone walk in and rob that. I'm not going to allow someone to sneak in and say, well, you know, I know that y'all, you know, but this is what's really. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the attacks from within. And that's what was going on in these churches that he's addressing. addressing. And, and, and he goes on to say, and he said, uh, be careful that you're not uh, affected by infiltrators, verse 4. 
For certain individuals whose condemnation was written to you long ago have, have watch this, have secretly slipped in. Do you know what a secret agent is? Do you know what an undercover agent is? What is the what is the what makes an undercover agent effective? Paul, talk to me, Paul. What makes an undercover agent effective? The fact that they're a secret. The fact that they're acting like they're a part of the group. But they're really on the other side. Isn't that the nature of an infiltrator? Of a, of, of a, of a secret undercover agent? Is they act like you. They talk like you. They, they do what you do. And then you don't realize all along. And then one day you wake up and go, oh my God, they were undermining everything that we've been doing here for all this time. Oh no. He's using that language to describe the infiltration that's taking place in the body of Christ. He's saying there are false ministers who are spreading stuff and they're infiltrating on the inside. They're imposters. They're infiltrators. You've got to be careful for them because they'll lead you down the wrong path. And he says there are two things that they do, and I'll just mention these two and I'll try to unpack them more next week. He said there's two things, two of their strategies that they use. Number one is license. Number one is license, and number two is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus. He says they're about license. He said they are ungodly. He's describing they're ungodly people, and they pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our, so, our only sovereign Lord. There's two complaints. He said, he said they do these two things. They take the magnificence and the sheer grace of God and they pervert it by doing this they say yes we're all saved by grace isn't it wonderful oh hallelujah thank God for his grace and his love and his forgiveness it really doesn't matter what I do doesn't matter how I live doesn't matter what sins I commit doesn't matter I can do whatever I want to do sexually I can do whatever I want to do with my money I can live however I want to live it doesn't matter morality who cares why it's God's grace folks you realize that's extreme and it will lead you, that thinking will say, I can do morally whatever I want to do. And listen what happens in our day. What we will do is we will slide over to the culture. So we will start buying into and adopting culture's message, which I won't give you any examples. You can fill in the blank yourself, okay? We buy into what the culture is saying. Because we now have a mindset, an extreme view of the grace of God, which we, we take as license to do whatever we want to do. Now, oh, we're, hallelujah, we're saved by grace. It doesn't matter what we do now. It does matter what you do now. The difference is no longer do we need to be motivated by the law, but now we're motivated by the love of God. And if we're truly understanding the grace of God, you will not want to disobey God. You will not want to violate His principles. You will want to live a moral life, not because it's a rule, not because it's a do or don't, but because the love of God is so relevant to you, because you want to please Him. And that, my friend, will fight license every day. And then finally he says, and for some reason he said, and these people are rejecting, they're denying the the lordship of Jesus. I don't know why they're rejecting. I don't know whether they're introducing other idols. We don't really know. But all I know is this. For you and for me, we cannot fall ever into the habit of rejecting the lordship of Jesus over our lives, our affairs, and our church. I have to close. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. They've been so patient and stick around waiting for me. And they're going to come up and do another song of worship. 
And next week, more Jude. Next week, more Jude. And it'll be of a little lighter note. Would you stand to your feet? Father, help us to be lovers of truth. Help us to walk the balanced beam of spirit and word. Help us, Lord, to never compromise. Forgive us, Lord, for times that we have lost our equilibrium, got a little bit out of alignment. Bring us back into the mainstream of what you're doing and saying. Thank you so much, God, that you're patient with us and that you love us enough to warn us in the Scriptures. So, Lord, bless us today as we take these words to heart. In Jesus' name.